If you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn in the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew there in front of you. And when you've found Deuteronomy, chapter 11, I'm going to ask you to stand and we will uh, hear read together the word of the living God. This is Moses speaking to the people as they are gathered on the plains of Moab, ready to enter into the promised land. And this is the word of the Lord, chapter 11, verse 1. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, and his commands always. Remember today that your children were not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God, his majesty, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. The signs he performed and the things he did in the heart of Egypt, both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his whole army, what he did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots, how he overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you, and how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dathan. And Abiram, sons of Eliab the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. Let's pray together. Father, we ask, as always, that you would bless this reading and hearing of your word. That's your promise. And we ask again, Spirit of God, that you would join the reading of your word and the preaching of your word, that, Lord, you would bring transformation to all of our hearts, to all of our lives. And, Father, where our our lives are out of accord with your word and your truth, I pray that even during this time you would reorient them into a Godward and a Christ-focused direction and purpose for our lives. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you were here last week, you know that we began to talk about how God uses discipline in the lives of his people to to shape them, to shape us and mold us so that God's people look like God's people. So that when the world observes us and when we look at each other, we know that we belong to God and to no one else. The word that's used here, again as we saw last week in verse 2, for discipline encompasses this entire process that God uses to educate his people, the whole process, to teach his people about who he is and what he requires of us as his people. So in these verses, 1 through 7, Moses mentions different examples of the discipline of God and how he used that discipline to shape his people. Last week, we looked at Pharaoh and the plagues that God brought upon Egypt. We talked about the Red Sea and how the entire Egyptian army uh, was drowned there. According to verse 4, brought to, to ruin. The discipline there for God's people, if they were watching and listening, is that God's power comes against any outside force that would attempt to keep God's people from coming to him. Pharaoh tried that. He tried to enslave the people of God. He tried to keep God's people from worshiping God, and so God's power came against Pharaoh, destroyed him, and the army with him. This morning, 
we have a complementary story to that one. We're going to look at the same God, the same power, but this morning, uh, God's power doesn't come against those outside. He goes against those right in the heart of the community. Now, Ebola, we've been following that, disease with no established cure. And according to The Economist, as of November 2nd, there are 13,042 cases and 4,818 deaths have been reported worldwide. That's a lot of people, and most experts believe the number is actually three times that amount. It's a disease that seems to spread quickly and easily, and so it makes it a very scary virus for us. So what would you do? And how would you react if someone who was infected with Ebola came through the back door? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Well, because he's Jesus, he could heal them. We don't have that ability. But what does he expect of us? Should we welcome that person into our midst? Should we invite them to have a seat here beside this nice young couple with their two young children? What should our response be? Is our first responsibility to that person or to the family as a whole? See, this story this morning about Dathan uh, and Eliab, it's, it's a bit of a spiritual Ebola story. Moses doesn't go into great detail about it here in the verses we've read because this story must have become legendary among the people, just as the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea was legendary to them. They didn't need to hear all the details because they knew them all well. But you and I may not uh, know the story as well as they did. And so we have to go to Numbers chapter 16. And in Numbers chapter 16, we read the full account of what Moses mentions here in just a couple of verses. And here's what we find out when we go to Numbers 16. These two men, Abiram and Dathan... They were joined by another man whose name was Korah. Korah was the great-grandson of Levi, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, who became one of the twelve tribes of Israel. And to that particular tribe, God had given the responsibility, the calling, to be priests for the whole nation of Israel. The other two came from Reuben, who was the first son of Jacob. And so they had a place of priority in the lineup. You know, first son, most important. So we have this man from the priestly line, and two men from the line of the first son, Reuben. And these three men, according to Scripture, they became insolent. And they rose up against Moses. And they got 250 other men to join them. Well-known community leaders. All 250 were members of the council. And so they came as a group to oppose Moses and his brother Aaron. The two men that God had miraculously called... You remember the story of God speaking to Moses at the burning bush? God miraculously called them and and he commissioned them to lead his people out of the slavery of Egypt. He commissioned Moses and Aaron to lead his people even up until the present time. God ordained. God ordained leadership. Well, this group comes to Moses and Aaron and they say, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Basically, who do you think you are? That's what they're saying. Now, you and I, as Americans, have to admit 
that lurking around inside of us, rambling around never too far away, is exactly this same kind of attitude. Who do you think you are? Because we hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among them, the right, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. President Lincoln told us that government of the people, by the full people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. So, had Korah, Dathan, and the others been around in 1776, it's just possible that we might have said, Yeah, you go, Korah. Tell them, Abiram. Let them have them, David. We, they, we are all equal. Moses and Aaron, they are no better than the rest of us. Or, as they stated to Moses, we are all holy to the Lord. True that. All holy to the Lord. Neither Aaron nor Moses are better than anyone else. These men have had their own sinful outbursts. They've had their own moments of disobedience, not the least of which was when Aaron collected all the gold from the people and, and fashioned it into a calf and then worshipped around it and let all the people in worshipping around it and said to them, these are your gods, O people of Israel, who led you up out of the land of Egypt. Can you imagine having that on your spiritual resume? A sin that grave. Knowing what God had done for you, knowing all that he did, and saying, oh, God didn't do it, somebody else did it. And not only that, but leading all of his people into that sin with you. No, Aaron is not sinless. No, Aaron is not better than other people, and I'm so thankful. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful that that's not what God requires. Sinless perfection before he can use people or set them in places of authority. Now, that's what God's grace is for, to forgive, to restore, and to empower us to, to move on from there. What makes both Aaron and Moses different? This is what makes them different. They are called by God to lead God's people. Called by God to lead God's people. Moses, their national leader. Aaron, their spiritual leader. Two sinful men called by God for God's purposes. And look, Moses didn't even want this job. Moses did not want this position of authority. From the time of the burning bush to the wandering in the desert. You know, when when God first called him at the burning bush... He said, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to him, who am I, Lord, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And so God said, I'll be with you, Moses. Moses replied, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord did not appear to you? It's okay, Moses. Here are three miracles that you can perform. And these miracles will convince the people that I have sent you. Moses said, oh, well, Lord, I've never been eloquent in speech. Not in the past, not now. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said, who gave man his mouth? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you and speak. And I'll help you speak and teach you what to say. And I suppose Moses figured out that God wasn't getting his point. And so he says this directly to God, Oh, Lord, please, please send someone else to do it. Clearly, 
This is an honor that Moses did not seek or want. But God wanted it for him. It wasn't an easy calling for Moses. There were many difficult times. And one of those times, we might call it the dark night of the soul, all the people of Israel are standing at their tents and they're wailing and they're moaning, the man, the man, the man, you know, they're so tired of the manna that God has miraculously provided for them. It's not enough variety in their diet and so they're all moaning and wailing. And Moses had enough and so he said to the Lord, Lord, what have I done to displease you so much that you put the burden of these people on me? He didn't want this job. But Moses' life wasn't about Moses' desires. His life wasn't about his passions. It was about God's call on his life. And it was about his place in God's community. Moses had left the hectic life of Egypt. He had fled the royal life of Egypt. He didn't want it. He ran away from it. And now he had a nice life in the country with a wife and a family. And he took care of his father-in-law's flocks. A nice, peaceful life for Moses. But God's calling on Moses' life. It wasn't Moses' dream. It wasn't his passion. Not even a little bit, but it's what God wanted for him. And you know what? You and I would do well to remember that in our own lives. And we would do well to remember that when we are counseling other people about their lives as well. We need to temper the advice, well, what do you want to do? with your life. What are your passions? What are you passionate about? Maybe we need to temper that with what is God's calling on your life? What is God's place for you in God's community? That's the first question to ask. Why? Because Scripture tells us this, 1 Corinthians six nineteen: you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. I know Westminster is our denominational one. They say Westminster is for the head, but Heidelberg is for the heart. And this is the very first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. I love it so much. The question is this. What is your only comfort? What is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the answer. My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own. I'm not my own. But I belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready. Heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. Listen, that's the biblical perspective of life. And I'm assuming that because you're here this morning, you're at least a little bit interested in the biblical perspective. So here it is. You're not your own. Your life is not your own. Accept it, reject it, but this is the biblical perspective. Our life 
is about God's calling. And it's God's calling on our lives, yours and mine, that, that keeps us going when we have these moments like Moses had, when you want to give up like Moses did, when you're sure of God's call on your life. In the moment when you want to throw in the towel, you can look back and con- with confidence and say, no, I know that God called me to this. I know that God called me to this place. I know that God called me to this position, to this job, to this marriage, whatever it is, and he'll see me through. A lot of you here this morning are young people. Where are y'all gathered? Oh, right where I can see you. But you're trying to figure out, you know, what is it I'm supposed to do with my life? And prayerfully, that's a life that's going to stretch many, many, many years into the future for you. What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to marry? Well, how in your life are you demonstrating that the decisions that you are making about what you do with your life Demonstrate that you believe, if you believe it, that you belong, both body and soul and life and in death, to Jesus. That you're seeking His calling for your life. Let me give you a little bit of advice for somebody who's way more than halfway through the journey. It's better to figure that out on the front end, right now, than to have to come to the Lord 10, 15, 20 years from now, Lord, clean up the mess that I've made with my life. You know, seek His calling right now. Some of us, midway through life, and life isn't exactly what we thought or hoped it would be. And once you get halfway through, you know, there there are some who, who may say, Lord, what have I done to displease you that this is the life that you have given to me? You know, if you know that God called you, if you know that God called you to what you're doing professionally, you know you're in the place that God called you to be with the person that He called you to be with, then know this, God will strengthen you to keep going. I believe that with all my heart. But if you've been self-seeking in your life all these years, rarely, if ever, seeking the Lord, and His direction, and His guidance for you, because basically your life has always been about you, and your desires, and your passions. Confess, Lord. I confess now, my life has really always been about me, and my goals, and what I want. And I have been wrong. So repent. And then trust that God will take that repentance, this new seeking after Him, and that He'll redeem the mess that you might have made with your life. He'll redirect and reorient. Now we have some retired people, don't we? (laughs) An anomaly here at Redeemer. (laughs) Old people. We have some now. We're glad to have you. You've worked hard your whole life. Maybe you think it's to buy your freedom. Woo! Free last, free last. Your life is not your own either. You belong both body and soul and life and in death, to the Lord. What a unique position you're in. Are you asking the Lord, Lord, how do I use all this free time that you have blessed me with? Lord, how do I use these resources with which you've blessed me to bless your people? Well, I have digressed. (laughs) Here's the good thing. I know that I have digressed. When I no longer know that I've digressed, that's called rambling, and that's when you can start looking at each other nervously, get 
him out. He doesn't know what he's doing. Let's get back to our story, can we? Get back to Korah and Dathan and Abiram. They come to oppose Moses and Aaron because they don't like how God has ordered things. And so Moses says to Korah, who's really the leader of the group, isn't it enough for you that you are a Levite? That God has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and to minister to them? What a place of privilege. But the answer to that question is no, Moses. What God has given me isn't enough. Because Korah doesn't like what God has called him to. Korah doesn't like the position that God has given to him. Instead, he wants the position that Aaron has. He wants Aaron's job. He doesn't like God's authority structure. He doesn't like who God has placed in authority over him. And so he's not going to submit to that authority because Korah wants to be an authority unto himself. When Moses summoned the other two guys to come into his presence, they refused to come. Nope, we're not coming. But this is what they said. They said, Moses brought us out. Moses brought us out of the land of milk and honey to kill us in the desert. Now, please listen up to this. Another important fact. Pride and arrogance and discontentment and grasping after what is not yours will require you to distort reality. Okay? Pride, arrogance, grasping after what doesn't belong to you will require you to distort reality. It will require you to twist the truth. You know, we do it in simple ways. Kind of harmless, maybe. We have a car. It's a good car. I want a new car. So suddenly the car that's been so fine, we start hearing things. We start seeing things. We start feeling things. Oh, I've got to get a new car. And we'll say whatever we have to do to justify getting rid of the old car, which is perfectly fine, in order that we can buy a new car. Now, you know that we do that. That's what we do. So these two want to completely twist the truth to justify their action. You think it's no small thing, but listen again to what they say. These two men say that Egypt is the land flowing with milk and honey. Egypt is the land flowing with milk and honey. Egypt was not the land flowing with milk and honey. What is the land, according to God, that is flowing with milk and honey? The promised land, right? Look in your Bibles, verse 9. A couple verses past what we read this morning. Here's a description of not Egypt, but the promised land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land that you are entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot. But the land you are crossing, the Jordan to take possession of, is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heaven. It's a land the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. That's the truth. And these three men knew that that was the truth. They had heard the report of the spies who checked out the land. They said, hey, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. These three had seen the fruit of that land that they brought back as evidence. These rebels knew what life had been like in Egypt because they had lived there. It may have been fertile, but it was arid. It never rained. 
The yearly overflow of the Nile made it fertile, but they had to manage that water, save it up until the next year, which made irrigation painstaking and backbreaking as they used their foot to, to scrape out these irrigation channels just in order to produce a harvest. The rebels knew all of that. But the truth didn't matter to them. Reality did not matter to them because the truth stood in the way of them getting what they wanted. And that's the scariest part. That is the scariest part of stepping outside of God's will and His way. The scariest part of us trying to get out from underneath the authority of God in our lives. The truth that we have to massage, the truth that we have to twist, the truth that we have to deny, the justifications that we have to make, the lies we tell ourselves, oh, it'll be okay this time. It won't be. The three rebels expose their hand when they say to Moses, and now you want to lord it over us. And that's the real issue here. These men don't want anybody being in a position of authority over them. They want to be an authority unto themselves. And we all struggle with that. You know, from the time we're little kids, you're not the boss of me. This was in the Wall Street Journal, October 29th, just a week before last, 2014. It's an article entitled, Children Put Mom and Dad on a First Name Basis. For attention, power, or as a test, parents address the shift. And the article talks about how children of all ages, children and adolescents, they're, they're ditching mom and dad for Linda and Sam and households around America. The shift may be because parents have ceded authority in their home or from teen one-upsmanship of their authority figure. One therapist specializing in teens says that the, the shift is a fallout from an overly permissive parenting. Some therapists and psychologists characterize the phenomenon as a classic teen boundary testing, and other psychologists says children are trying to understand the nature of their power and control in their relationships and in their home. Finally, a psychologist said that parents should be firmer, not friendlier, as children transition to adulthood. Insisting on being called mom and dad helps maintain important boundaries and hierarchy. See, there it is. From our various, from our very earliest moments, this attempt to subvert authority. And so Moses gets directly to the heart of the issue when he says to Korah, it is against the Lord. It is against the Lord that you and your followers have banded together. It's not me. It's the Lord that you have come against. Moses has his position by the decree of God to fulfill the purpose of God. Aaron has his position by the decree of God to fulfill the purpose of God. Israel is structured as it's structured by the decree of God to fulfill the purpose of God. So just as the power of God comes against any force outside of, of his people that would keep them away from him, so now God's power will come against those inside the community who would attempt to pervert the, the relationship that God wants to have with his people. Anyone who would try to pervert the responsibilities that God has given to his people, he loves his people. And this nation of Israel is a brand new nation, 
a tender plant, a fledgling, a fledgling nation, and God is going to protect it so it can grow. Grow into a strong nation of people who order their lives as God says, order your life. People who grow into a nation who live in right relationship with God, which is the place of real and true blessing. People who grow into a, a nation strong to bless the nations of the world. God's power will come against anyone within the community that tries to prevent that growth in that direction and toward that identity. And so these three, and the 250 who follow them, and their attitude, and what they're trying to do within the community of God's people is like an Ebola virus set loose to infect the whole of God's community and destroy it. And so here is what happens if you don't know the story. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron. And so when they had all gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses warned the whole assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you'll be swept away because of all their sins. And so the people moved away from the tents of these men. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that this is not my own idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But... If the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord. Not me. They have treated the Lord with contempt. And as soon as Moses finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah, together with all their possessions, and then the fire of the Lord came down and consumed the 250 men. Wow. Talk about the discipline of the Lord. How was this event to shape and mold God's people? What could they learn from it? How much must the Lord love His people? How much must the Lord love His community to act in this way to protect them? And what would have happened to the community of Israel if God had not acted in this way to get rid of the virus? What if these men's rebellion had been successful? Where were these men who had no respect for God and no respect for His authority? Where would they have led this community of God's people? What would have happened to the community in the hands of those who so easily disregard and twist the truth? 
how would the nation of Israel become easily recognizable as God's people under the leadership of men like this? We don't know the what-ifs, do we? But God knows those. And clearly, it's, it's God's purpose. In such a dramatic event and display as this one, to teach his people what lengths he will go to to protect his community so that his community can thrive, so that his community can enjoy the relationship that he made possible for those who will submit to his authority. This is the gospel. It's the extent that Christ went to. We read it this morning to, to create for himself a church that's without spot, that's without wrinkle, that's without blemish. He will protect his people so that we become the people that he has called and enable us to be. The power of God will come against whoever would prevent God's people from knowing the deeply meaningful and satisfying experience of doing what it is that God has called us to do, to be a blessing to the people of the world. Lord willing, we're going to talk more about this topic next week. It's really important. But until then, I want you to think about the answers to just a few more questions. And, And maybe I should have preached this before these new people join the church. (laughs) How much do you love the community of God's people? What we now call the church. How important is the community in your life? What's more important to you? Your life as an individual or your life as part of of the community of God's people. What do you do to protect God's community, the church? What do you do to promote and strengthen and build up the community? How about this one? Have you ever been a virus in the community? And if so, why? What did you hope to achieve? What place does the authority God has established in the community play in your life? Do you act as a person outside or under authority? How willing are you to allow God to speak to you through his word about the importance of the community in your life? Are you willing to grapple with the interplay that must take place between your your life as an individual and your life as a member of the community of God? Maybe even acknowledge that God can actually use the community to grow you into the person he wants you to be. Or will you just be a lone ranger? Me and Jesus, we have our own thing. We'll figure it out. Think about the answers to those questions, if you can remember them. If not, you can listen to this sermon again. It'll be on the website. Because how we answer the questions, all of us together, are really going to determine a lot about what we're going to be able to accomplish as a community of believers 
in this community in which God has placed us. Our answers are going to determine how much we are going to be able to do in this place that God has planted us. And our answers are going to determine how recognizable we at Redeemer are as God's people and how well we as a community do what he has called us to do. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, sometimes it's difficult to pray the prayer of, of thanks for your word when your word is a story like the one that we have read this morning. Terrible story in so many ways. But yet, Lord, we know you can teach us through it. You can discipline us through it. And Father, clearly in this story, you, you reveal how much you love us, how much you want to protect us, your people. Or those viruses that would come against the church, to infect the church, to destroy the church, to divert or uh, get the church off track from being who you've called us to be, living in the right relationship with you, and, and to get us off track on the really important things that you have called us to do. Lord, you, we thank you that you won't allow that. And we thank you that you work on our behalf to protect us because we need you, Lord, here, here in our midst to grow us and strengthen us. We need your power to do the things that you have called us to do. So we thank you that you love us in that way and protect us in that way. Father, I pray that you would cause each of us to examine our own hearts and our own lives, our attitude toward the church, our place in it, how important it is to us, how unimportant it is to us, what you may want us to do in it, how you may use us to, to grow and strengthen this place. Lord, for others, it may be conviction of, of how they've worked against or too easily spoken against or complained about or ridiculed the church. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that we would think about it, how important it is to you. And because it's important to you, important to us, so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. And as you speak to us, that your word would make us the holy people and the holy church that you've called us to be. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.